Welcome to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of Canada's podcast on fertility. This podcast is part of a series to inform people affected by a blood cancer. My name is Caroline Mitchell and I am a Community Engagement Manager. I am part of a team across the country. Our role is to connect people affected by a blood cancer to resources that inform, support, educate and empower. Today, I am speaking with Megan McMillan, who is a clinical nurse specialist for the Adolescent and Young Adult Program, working with AYA patients to meet their needs throughout their cancer journey. Megan studied nursing at McGill University, as well as completed her Master's of Science Nursing there. Megan currently works for the University Health Network at the Princess Margaret Hospital. We are here to talk about fertility and cancer. Megan, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. How common is it for cancer patients to struggle with fertility? And can you share a little bit of common struggles that you see? We see a lot of distress in cancer survivors who realize after the fact that their fertility may have been affected. Um, We also see, you know, because people retain that hope that their fertility may recover after treatment. So we do see people um, struggle as they get tested after treatment to see whether or not their fertility has returned. So certainly we see lots of um, struggles around fertility and I think a lot of them are related to the uncertainty. We've, we can never say anything uh, with a, a guarantee. Um, there's always a chance that we can retain somebody's fertility and we try um, to use different techniques to do so. Um, and then we also use some assisted uh, reproductive technologies to help us to allow people to have biological children. But I think that, um, you know, people describe losing their fertility as a, uh, a blow that can sometimes feel as significant as their cancer diagnosis. So certainly it's a struggle that we hear about from, from lots of patients. Absolutely. Thank you. How do fertility issues differ from males and females who have had a blood cancer? In terms of the opportunity to do fertility preservation before treatment, um, the process for men is fairly straightforward and can often be organized within less than 24 hours, uh, even if they're admitted in hospital. And in terms of financial costs, their fees are lower than the, the cost for women. For women, there's a little bit more time required to do fertility preservation before treatment. So depending on the severity of their diagnosis and how ill they are upfront, they may not have an opportunity to do fertility preservation. So there can be challenges there. And there's also a difference, a, you know, very significant difference in cost for women um, because the fertility preservation for women requires multiple steps, including medications to stimulate their ovaries, and then all of the highly specialized costs associated with the people who do the laboratory techniques to freeze their eggs or embryos and whatnot. Certainly for men, it's a little bit more straightforward than for women. And then after treatment, both men and women um, could take some time to regain their fertility if they're going to regain their fertility after treatment. Um, So there is some commonality there with the uncertainty. There are overlaps, but um, I would say the two main differences are just the challenges with 
fertility preservation for women and um, and there's also a bit of invasiveness uh, to it for women. They require you know more invasive ultrasounds and a procedure that requires sedation and, and that sort of thing. So um, so certainly certainly differences. How are fertility issues in cancer survivors commonly addressed? I know you talked a little bit about them, but what are some of the medical interventions in case people aren't aware of them? Some women whose fertility returns, they may still have a lower level of fertility than a peer of the same age who has not undergone chemotherapy. And so sometimes after treatment, we may recommend that they do egg preservation at that time if they're not looking to start a family um, because they may end up in menopause at an earlier age than what we would expect if they hadn't undergone chemotherapy. Um, if they choose to use the eggs that were preserved, then that would be done using um, intracytoplasmic sperm injection, so using their partner or donor sperm and um, injecting the sperm into the egg to create an embryo, and then the embryo would be put into the uterus of the person who will carry the, the baby, and um, and then that should, you know, hopefully lead to a viable pregnancy. Um, if they weren't able to do egg or embryo preservation before treatment, um, again, we would check to see if their fertility is recovered. If it hasn't, they still have the option of using a donor egg, uh, which they can, uh, they would have to speak to a fertility clinic about. Um, donors don't come from Canada um, just because of laws in Canada, but they can be, those donor eggs can be used in Canada. So fertility clinics um, would access them through usually the United States. Um, and so that would be something to speak to a fertility clinic about if you're interested. For men, if they did do sperm banking prior to treatment, then, then obviously that's an option. We would usually advise checking to see whether or not their um, sperm has recovered. And so we would normally wait about six months to a year after treatment. And we can do a semen analysis to see the number and health of the sperm present. And if the, they have healthy sperm and uh, a decent number, they can try to have a, a child naturally. If they do not, then they can wait because some men will regain their fertility even up to 10 years after treatment. But if they don't want to wait, because some people may be at the point where they were in the midst of, of starting a family. And so in those cases, and they, if they wanted to use their sperm, they would the fertility clinics would often recommend um, that they did so using uh, in vitro fertilization. So the reason why they, they do that often with, uh, even for men who have had uh, sperm frozen is because if they don't regain their fertility and they want to have more than one child, then we want to be as conservative as possible with semen that we have preserved. And so it just gives us a better chance of achieving the outcome that we desire, which is having a healthy pregnancy. What would you say to someone who is a blood cancer survivor experiencing fertility issues? What are some coping mechanisms they can use? They're not alone, first of all. It's, um, you know, sadly, this is something that, that does happen to people who've been through treatment for cancer, and particularly um, some of the treatments that we give for blood cancer may be more likely to cause fertility issues. So 
I think that um, reaching out to peers, people who've been through something similar, uh, can often be quite helpful for people. I have a lot of patients who've even used um, your First Connection program through the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society to connect with other people, similar ages, who've had similar treatments to uh, learn about their experiences. And I know uh, people get a lot of benefit from that. Connecting with your loved ones and you know, being vulnerable with them, allowing them to understand some of the challenges you're facing. Nobody, you know, starts their day with the intention of being insensitive to other people. But um, I think it's hard for individuals who haven't had fertility issues to understand the impact that it would have on somebody else. And um, and there's going to be little reminders on a regular basis that you might have to face that can bring you back to that place where you might be feeling quite low about um, having fertility issues. So, you know, having to attend a family member or friend's baby shower or, you know, trying to be happy for a sibling or a best friend who's who's having a baby. And while you might want to be happy, I think it does often bring up the mourning and the, um, the loss that you might feel. Sometimes giving yourself the space to feel that loss and to acknowledge that it's there and um, connecting with people around you who would be there to support you and then also people who've been through something similar. I, I think that those are, are maybe some of the, the main coping mechanisms that I can suggest. I think it's like anything else in the sense that unless you've been through it, you probably can't understand exactly what the individual is going through. And so I think it's about keeping an open mind and allowing the person to feel the way they're feeling. I don't think there's ever a right or a wrong way to feel about a situation. Um, each person has their own way to go through the process of mourning the loss of fertility and you know, any, any challenge that, that comes our way, we all have our own way of dealing with it. So I think it's about understanding that you know, your friend or family member who's going through this is going to have to unpack it in their own way and that the best thing you can do is be there to listen to them and to um, allow them to be vulnerable with you and to share their challenges and their, you know, their lows and their highs as they um, start to process it and, and move past it. So move past it's probably the wrong word. It's really about learning to carry it with you. So which is actually um, sort of stealing that from a patient who uh, who said that she um, feels like it's about learning how to carry the baggage with her because she feels like it'll always be there. And I thought that was a really great way to put it. Excellent. Thank you. Are there any resources that you would recommend people check out related to fertility? One resource that I find useful is um, is actually out of an organization in the United States um, called the Onco Fertility Consortium. And one of the things that they have on there is decision-making tools, um, which can be helpful for people who get diagnosed at a young age and, and haven't necessarily thought about fertility preservation uh, because they haven't thought about having a family yet and you know given that people are have, starting families often later and later and nowadays you know if you have a an 18 or 19 year old or even younger being diagnosed with uh, cancer they 
probably haven't even thought about what their future family planning might be. And so some of these decision-making tools can be helpful for people who haven't uh, even thought about this for their their future because uh, they have tools uh, geared towards different age groups. So uh, so I do think that they have some great tools. on our website, the Princess Margaret Adolescent and Young Adult Program website, there is a page on fertility, and we have a bunch of resource links there as well um, for male and female fertility preservation, as well as a whiteboard video for women who are considering fertility preservation so they can understand what the process entails. There are differences as well in terms of the reimbursement by province. So it's because healthcare is provincially regulated. Um, we do see discrepancies in terms of uh, what provinces are willing to cover for fertility preservation. So um, Quebec, for example, covers all of the fertility preservation for patients going for cancer treatment, uh, including the storage fees. Ontario covers all of fertility preservation for men and women, except for the medications that will stimulate the ovaries uh, for women, and they do not pay for the storage fees for men or women. I'm glad you mentioned that because there is some real equities across the country and types of support for patients. So, I mean, those financial resources are, are huge for fertility. Yes, that and even geographic issues. Um, There are some provinces who actually don't have any clinics that are able to do the fertility preservation. So some patients, if they're very ill at diagnosis, um, they would, they, you know, hopefully would be told that their fertility would be impacted, but they may not necessarily be able to fly to another city to undergo fertility preservation. So what is one thing you wish people knew about cancer related fertility issues? As a healthcare professional, we talk about it as if it's just common knowledge that chemotherapy can cause fertility issues. But, um, you know, even when I tell people about what I do and I say that some of my role includes fertility counseling and people say, why would you have to do that in a oncology setting? And so I think that as healthcare professionals, we need to do a better job at acknowledging that, you know, we live and breathe in a niche area. And so, Not every patient is going to understand that the treatment that they're going to receive will uh, potentially impact their fertility. For patients, everybody is going to have different risk factors and um, everyone's going to have different outcomes. And so the best you can do is talk to your healthcare team and try to understand the risk factors that apply to you before treatment and, and then to check after treatment to see how things have have changed. Excellent, thank you. Thank you so much, Megan, for taking the time to talk to us about fertility and cancer today. If you have any questions about fertility or need support to navigate your experience, contact the LLSC at 1-833-222-4884. You can also visit our website at llscanada.org Thank you for listening to the Blood Cancer Experience podcast series by the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of Canada. You can find us wherever you access your favorite podcasts, so be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. If you have an idea for the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email with your comments or suggestions to canadainfo at lls.org. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of Canada is dedicated to funding cutting-edge research 
and supporting people affected by blood cancers. To learn more and access resources including fact sheets, booklets, and webcasts, visit llscanada.org.